I want to welcome you once again to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, where we take you behind the doors of Acton and talk with the people who bring moral and theological reflection to bear on the big issues of the day. Joined by a uh, very good crew today here on Acton's podcast. First of all, you've heard his voice a couple of times already here. Ray Notstein is back with us again. Thanks for having me, Mark. Michael Miller is here. He's the director of programs for the Acton Institute, and he's been all over the radio in the last couple of days, running me ragged with interviews talking about Healthcare this time, but uh, if you go to Acton.org, you can check out a lot of what he said uh, on the air across the country the last few days. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. And joining us on the phone from St. Louis, Missouri, Anthony Bradley. He's an assistant professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. He's also a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. Anthony, glad to have you along today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been a big week in politics, and it's hard hard to avoid that subject these days. Super Tuesday was, of course, the this previous Tuesday, and the Republican race has shaken out quite a bit since then. Mitt Romney has dropped out because it simply wasn't realistic for him to get the nomination anymore. Mike Huckabee staying in, although I think it's also not very realistic to think that Huckabee has a shot at the nomination. And John McCain is your presumptive Republican nominee. Well, that leaves uh, evangelicals still sort of flocking to Mike Huckabee a little bit anyways. The the question is, what are Huckabee's economics? Huckabee has sort of taken a, a more populist approach to economics. And Michael Miller, you have an article, uh, I believe, with Jay Richards this week uh, that was in the Detroit News that discusses some of these economic issues with Huckabee. Right. It seems like Huckabee really sees the connection between political liberty and religion, but doesn't really make the connection between religion and economic liberty. And I think that's making a lot of conservatives worried. I think he would have broader support if he were more consistent on his economic views. Maybe Huckabee's vying for a vice presidential candidate. I'm not sure if that's what he's doing or not. But I think that um, it's, it's interesting to see how the field is so split apart because there's not a real conservative candidate who gets the synthesis of limited government and a free economy. I mean, you see across the board, no one really has this, and they flip-flop on these things. And on social issues, there's been a lot of flip-flopping on Romney's side. I think that's what uh, that's why a lot of evangelical voters kind of wanted to support Romney, but I don't think they were sure about his commitment to the life position, which is very important to them. Um, and so it's interesting to, to, to see in the conservative uh, field that what we're finding is that without a real strong conservative candidate, somebody like Ronald Reagan, for example, um, that it starts to break up, and I think it shows you that there is there's some breakup, there's some fall apart in the conservative coalition. Oh, there really is. A, there's a lot of consternation among conservatives about John McCain being the nominee. Even John McCain, who is he is pro life, he is uh, relatively conservative on a lot of the social issues. But you can you can go back and find comments from his associates, from other senators, from his staffers to say that his heart really isn't there. That's not what his core is. McCain running more on issues like the war, defense, security, things like that, that are also important to a lot of conservatives, but he doesn't, I don't think he's going to fire up the, the social conservatives very much um, because he does have kind of a mixed record on that, and there's, who knows where, where he's going to stand on judges. Right. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that he's been pretty clear on his pro-life position. He has decent ratings on that. Mm-hmm. So I would be surprised if social conservatives don't end up voting for McCain in the general election. They may not vote for him in the, in the primaries. But if you're comparing with him with, say, Obama or Clinton, and you look at the the uh, positions they have on life or on other big social issues yes. or on judges, I think that, that McCain's going to get the base. I doubt the base is going to stay away. I mean, if McCain were Giuliani, then it would be different. I think oh, that would, that would be away. a huge – that would be a disaster, I think. But that's a perfect transition point into the Democratic campaign where there's a lot more focus this year on evangelical or religious voters – 
I, I think the Democrats, what they, the lesson they learned, especially in 2004, was that the religious vote is very important in the presidential race. Right. And so there's been a lot more outreach to religious voters. There's a lot more use of religious language. Right. And I, I think, especially in the, the Barack Obama campaign, there's a lot more inspiring talk or, or a talk of hope, uh, talk about the future, not necessarily specifics, but a lot of a lot of talk about about hope and a lot of almost quasi religious language being used in the campaign, even outside the context of churches. Ray, do you have anything uh, you you've, you wanted to talk about Obama well, a little bit? Uh, I can talk a little bit about Obama because I remember being in seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary, and Jim Wallace came to speak, and he said that Obama was this William Wilberforce like figure. So he he addressed the Sojourners. I think it was two thousand six where he addressed the Sojourners audience and. He's very popular among the religious left, but not just the religious left, because he's gone out there and he said things like, I think of a quote here, is, he said, liberals who dismiss religion in the public square as inherently irrational or intolerant are just not going to be effective. And so he can speak to, you know, these emergent evangelicals we see in our culture today. He talks about his own faith experience where he's been confused at times, and he's talked about his reconciliation with his, with church and with Jesus. So he can speak this language, and I think what will happen is some people will look at his church and his UCC church in Chicago, and they might have some things to say about that. They might have some reservations about Obama. But he is somebody that can effectively speak to evangelicals, even if you don't agree with some of his politics. He comes across as being very authentic. Right, that's very different from, say, Howard Dean. Right. right who yeah, said, very his true. His favorite book of the New Testament was right. Job. <laughs> right. That doesn't play well with evangelical. Right, voters. and Kerry, yeah. John Kerry, when right. he ran in uh, 2004, he just looked awkward speaking about faith issues. It and just, Clint, I think Clinton does, too. I don't think she's very comfortable with it. Right. Obama no. is comfortable. But right. I think the good sign, kind of what you said, Ray, is that we do see that there's a broader acceptance of, of religious discourse in the public square. Right. And I think what you'll have to look at is he said specifically that his UCC values, he used this. In a speech or a comment, he said, my UCC values, United Church of Christ values, will affect a lot of my positions. And I think some people will have to take a look at the UCC and say, does that line up with my positions? You can give him this much. That's more than you can say for what Romney had to say in his uh, religion right. speech earlier. It's true. Anthony Bradley, I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, on Barack Obama and the religious voters. What do you have to think? Well, I mean, if, if, if Barack Obama is going to bring his UCC values uh, to the table... We don't have much to worry about because the UCC doesn't value much. <laughs> and, and so, and so, it, it, when you when you're dealing with with mainline liberalism, I mean, it's interesting they don't really have strong convictions about anything in particular, because the language is always conveniently nebulous. Yes. So it's it's always open to interpretation. When when Obama talked about being a person of faith, when he used religious language. No one really knows what he means, and it's, 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 it's very convenient because we're all left to, to actually interpret those things according to what we think he might possibly mean, which actually gives him, if he's crafty at his rhetoric, uh, uh, will well, actually give him a, a larger audience, especially, especially with younger mm-hmm. evangelicals uh, who are reacting against their parents and grandparents' uh, religious right association with guys like James Dobson, for example. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing that I've noticed, and I've been trying to look into Obama's, uh, his, his religious convictions a little bit more, because one of the things that 
we said a lot around here at the Acton Institute when the whole issue of Romney's Mormonism came up is that, look, it's not so much a matter of what the person's faith is, but how their principles are going to affect their governance. How, right. how are they going to apply that faith to the practical outworking of how, how, how are they going to govern? And as you look at Obama, I read an article uh, just the other day where he talked about how Reinhold Niebuhr is, is one of his favorite philosophers, and he takes away from Niebuhr the, the idea that there is real genuine evil in the world and that we should be humble in our approach to how much we're going to be able to get rid of that but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything all of that i agree with uh, that yes there is evil in the world yes we're not going to be able to overcome it that also is not an excuse to do nothing but at that point uh, obama and i think a lot of religious conservatives would part because obama from there on his faith seems to be much more, I want to say it's worked out much more in the public sphere than within within himself. It's, it's almost as if his faith illuminates the problems and then the answer to those problems is that people of faith need to work through the government to solve the problems. Right. It's is always a, a more statist uh, utopianism. Right. That, that influence is always right. there, and it's, it's, uh, it's there in his approach to health care or various other social problems. And, it, you know, obviously, I'm always interested in when, when you get a, a liberal Christian candidate running who is pro-choice, who's in in some respects, they, they may disagree with abortion, but aren't willing to, quote unquote, impose their values on anyone right, but else. They would impose their values on a thousand other things. It, exactly. In every other arena of life, right. they, they will impose their values. So Obama, I, I, I think that we're going to have a lot of opportunities to examine his his stances um, in the coming in the coming years. And I, I have to say, I'm inclined to like the guy. That's the thing. He's a very good natural politician, very good, and very. he seems very likable. And he does have an inspiring quality about him, but it's where he takes that and what he does with that that concerns me as a, right. as a more conservative voter, I suppose you could say. Right. Well, one of the things you, you, you find with, with, with Obama's rhetoric is it's basically a variation on the theme of the social gospel movement right. where the church has been replaced with government. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so all of the the natural affinities to good and evil, uh, having distinctions between uh, faith and works, all those things are, are, are part of the Christian tradition in terms of rhetoric. But simply what's happened, you know, 30, 40 years uh, after the, the, the failure of the war on poverty is that that rhetoric that used to be applied to the church is now being applied to government even more, and Obama brings that now religious tradition of looking to government instead of the church um, to this campaign. Right. I think I think you see this. Liberals across the board, there's a tendency to kind of accept these Rousseauian notions of human perfectibility, that if you just organize the social structures so, things will fall into place and we're going to get rid of poverty and, and, and right. illiteracy, et cetera. And I think, you know, despite, like Mark said, despite Obama's rhetoric, nevertheless, there's still that kind of utopian underlying vision there. And I think that makes some conservatives a little worried. But at the same time, he, his, his rhetoric is very positive. And I think Anthony's point is important that a lot of people, when they hear it, if they, if they hear somebody talking about Jesus in the right. public square, yeah. they're going to say, oh, that's good. Yeah, I think so, too. And they're going to put their own view of what that means. So I think even mm-hmm. con- some conservatives um, may be inclined to vote for Obama because they think, well, he's talking about Jesus, too, and it's different than the religious right, like Anthony pointed out. Right. He takes these programs and he puts the Jesus spin on them. He kind of he speaks to these programs and how we need more programs, but he, he brings the faith element in, unlike any other candidate, you know, I've heard lately on that well, side I mean, of this. You know, John McCain uh, certainly doesn't do it because uh, we're not exactly sure what his, 
what his real commitment to faith is outside of of its utility in, in politics. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Obama is a lot more uh, sort of blatantly honest about his connections to a particular church. The man's got a picture with a pastor. Uh, who knows what, 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 what John McCain's actual tradition is in history with, with, with the church. And, and that's why religious conservatives continue to be very skittish about John McCain. And James Dobson recently said the last couple of days that if McCain, if, if, if McCain is the the choice for the Republicans, that he's not going to vote at all. And so here we have the president focusing the family saying that, that, that McCain is so distant from religious conservative views on, on the world uh, that he's not interested in being, in, in, in being a part of the process this election cycle at all. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's an interesting point, though, because there are certain non-negotiables and then there are prudential issues. And it seems to me, and I don't know, and I, I'm, like, I have my own real cons- concerns with McCain, um, but it seems to me that on the on the non-negotiables, that is life, and it seems that what, what he said that he'll do something good with judges, um, it surprises me that Dobson would say, well, forget it because you don't have the complete package, especially if the if the um, alternative is someone like Clinton or Obama. Well, I mean, you have to understand uh, conservative evangelicals are are often all or nothing. Uh, you, you either you either have to be a moral conservative, a fiscal conservative, a social conservative. Uh, and, and have all those 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 three things uh, uh, synthesized, or or nothing. It, it's either all or nothing. So if you're right. if you're in favor of fiscal conservatism, but you're kind of wishy-washy on on other issues, uh, that's not going to appeal to the evangelical base. It's an interesting year to say the least, and uh, I'm sure Anthony will be talking with you again as the campaign goes on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. And Ray and Michael, thank you for coming into the studios today. And uh, we will be back with you guys as well, I'm sure, as the year wears on. Right. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Well, as I have mentioned before on Radio Free Acton, we have a Acton Lecture Series event coming up on February 14th. And believe me, Acton has scoured the world to find the most romantic lecturer for your Valentine's Day. Dr. Glenn Sunshine is his name. He's coming in to talk about wealth, work, and the church. He is the chair of the history department at Central Connecticut State University, holds a Ph.D. in Renaissance and Reformation history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and an M.A. in church history from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he's with me on the phone right now. Dr. Sunshine, how are you this morning? I'm doing just great, thanks. Well, wonderful. Let's uh, get right down to business here. In the church, there's sort of an ambivalence about wealth and poverty issues. There's there's two very divergent views of how to handle these issues. And oftentimes, people sort of gravitate towards one camp or the other. On the one hand, you have those who would demonize the rich and who would almost canonize the poor, who would say that poverty in itself is a virtue. That's leaning more towards the liberation theology end of things. On the other hand, you have the folks who embrace the prosperity gospel, who say that wealth is a blessing from God. It's an, a sign of God's blessing, in fact, and that poverty is pretty much a curse from God. How is it possible that uh, two such groups could develop when they're reading presumably the same scriptures? Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of where these two views come from? It's true that they're reading the same scriptures, but they put their emphasis on different passages. So, for example, if you look at the Old Testament, you will find that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, these are all righteous men who are very rich. When you look at the promises that God gives to Israel, he says, if you obey me, you're going to become wealthy. 
You know, I've, everything mm-hmm. you do will prosper, will succeed. So the prosperity gospel puts its focus on those passages. The other side, the liberation theologians, and actually a number of movements in church history, have looked at different passages that have said things like, blessed are the poor. Um, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the Over and over again you see in Scripture condemnations of the rich in um, everything from the Old Testament prophets to the book of James. So that side puts its focus on those negative passages, that, that the passages that seem negative about wealth, and they say here we've got clear teaching in Scripture that wealth is bad. Well, what you're going to do next week is you're going to come in and give uh, something more of a, of a full overview of Scripture, correct? You're going to be talking, uh, the, 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 the phrase that comes to mind is, is to take the whole counsel of Scripture, not to just go to one side or the other, but to uh, look for the sort of the middle way. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be saying next week at the Acton Lecture Series? I would argue that both of these views are inadequate because they aren't taking into account the whole counsel of God. What you see happening, actually, if you read them in context, the condemnations of wealth are very real, but the issue there really revolves around wealth that is either acquired wrongly or used wrongly. Uh, Everything really hinges on understanding what happens in Genesis in the garden. What you see there is a series of blessings that are given to humanity in the beginning that are lost with the fall. Many of these uh, blessings that are lost revolve around economics. And what you see occurring through the rest of Scripture from there is God's move to restore his original purposes for humanity by restore and with that restoring the blessings. So if you rightly understand what's going on in Scripture, if you look at the big picture and understand the larger context, uh, material blessings are part of God's original intention for humanity and part of the restoration that's accomplished through Christ and even through the uh, liberation of the slaves from Egypt um, and so on is all part of this process of restoring God's original purposes. But having said that, Just like in the Old Testament law, there was the promise of blessing, if you obey. The promise of continued blessings, uh, the promise of of success uh, in all of that, is also contingent on us acquiring our wealth properly and spending it properly, being aware of the needs of the people around us, not overspending for our own purposes, our own uh, self-interests, while ignoring the needs of people around us. And it's also contingent on going about getting our wealth in the correct way. February 14th is the date. Dr. Glenn Sunshine will be here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to talk about wealth, work, in the church. And uh, also, should mention, Dr. Sunshine will be featured in our upcoming documentary, The Birth of Freedom. So we'll look forward to seeing you next week, and we'll look forward to seeing you on film, Dr. Sunshine. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Very welcome. And that will wrap things up for another edition of Radio Free Acton, the voice of the Acton Institute. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. You can find out more about the programs and initiatives of the Acton Institute on the web at www.acton.org. Be sure also to check out the Acton Institute Power Blog at blog.acton.org. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure to have you along with us again today, and we look forward to meeting with you again on the next edition of Radio Free Acton.